For the last 100 years, Americans have been obsessed with fascism, either as a constant threat or perhaps even as a farce. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong In this episode, we talk with Bruce Cookwood, the Roy and Jeanette Nichols Professor Emeritus of American History at the University of Pennsylvania, about his new book and findings, Fascism Comes to America. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation and also some of the clips from his favorite movies. Bruce Kuklick, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Uh, just a pleasure to talk about and, and read your new book, Fascism Comes to America, that's out now by University of Chicago Press. Um, you write that for the last hundred years, Americans have perceived fascism as a constant presence or threat. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the basism, the basis for fascism's grip in the American imagination. Uh, well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. I'm I'm really delighted to be here to talk about the book. I mean, I've been thinking about nothing but about except for fascism for the last five years. Uh, and the question you ask is probably the hardest one uh, that can be asked. It is undoubtedly clear that for the last hundred years in various ways, uh, Americans have been fascinated from afar by uh, fascism, uh, whatever it is. You see it in movies, you see it among politicians, you see it in scholarly debates. Uh, and what's remarkable is that uh, it outdistances uh, communism as a as threat by far uh, in the public mind as a threat to American democracy. And to tell you the truth, I don't know why it has such a fascination for Americans. I think part, part of it is that they, they worry about their really being fascist. Uh, they worry uh, that even though their country is a strong democracy, somehow it might be easily undermined by fascism. Uh, I, one of the metaphors I use is the attraction of the moth for the flame. Uh, if you want other reasons, one of them, I think, is the extraordinary iconography uh, that Hitler pulled together and which still is amazing. If you watch it, it's used on the screen all the time. I mean, the uh, the uh, the goose stepping army uh, in its gray black uh, outfits, uh, the incredible swastika with uh, red and black uh, colors, uh, the gigantic, uh, absolutely huge uh, displays of uh, flags and stuff like that. Uh, is something that really is amazing. I mean, you know, if you go to any political rally in the United States today, uh, whatever candidate is uh, on offer is uh, is wreathed in American flags. But in the United States, you have this doesn't compare in any way at all to the huge, uh, uh, colorful uh, pageantry that you get uh, under Hitler and the Nazis. So there are a whole host of things uh, which I have seen uh, in my research that make Americans attracted uh, 
to Nazism over the last, or to fascism over the last hundred years. But if you ask me for a really coherent uh, explanation of it, I haven't gotten one. Because the other thing is, it changes over a hundred years. You see different, uh, different manifestations of Americans' fear or hatred or willingness to make fun of these guys. But it's always there over and over and over again. Thank you for, for raising this issue of how the term <laughs> and meaning has changed. And I want to ask you actually precisely about that. You know, we regularly hear the terms fascism or fascist volleyed about in politics and culture. Uh, just this last week, there's, of course, been the controversy with Kanye West, uh, who goes by Ye now. Um, and, you know, one of the critiques against the left for calling that out has been, you know, that the that the left is also supporting fascists uh, yes. that have infiltrated the Ukraine, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we, you know, we see this term just used so easily, um, in a lot of ways. Um, but I wonder if maybe we take a step back and, you know, is, is there a definition for fascism or, or how do we understand that term? And, and, you know, as you, as you started to discuss already, how is that meaning shifted over time? Well, if you look over the long haul, which I've tried to do, what you see is that there's no common descriptive content to the meaning of that word over 100 years. Almost every political position imaginable has been called fascist. Um, and what I concluded, and this, I've, this has got me in some trouble and it's controversial, so let me let me try to explain it. I I don't think there is any what I call cognitive content to uh, the term fascism anymore. I think what it is is really a uh, an eval what I would call an evaluative term, a denigrator. Uh, what you what you do, what you accomplish when you call someone a fascist is to say I don't like you. Uh, or uh, this is bad, or it's like throwing a tomato at a politician that you don't like, or giving someone the Italian salute. Uh, and what's, what is interesting about this, I think, is that the use of the term is uh, simply unhelpful anymore. That doesn't mean you can't... Uh, dislike a politician or you can't dislike a public figure and think that that politician or public figure is uh, uh, is you know is really a danger to the country but I think it, it's no longer helpful to use the word fascism it probably comes through in the book but what I really want to stress for my readers is that they should make up their minds themselves I mean if they look at the the evidence that I presented and this uh, incredible variation in the way the term has been used over 100 years and the, the way it has come to uh, simply castigate someone, uh, you know, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no intellectual content to it anymore, or at least the intellectual content is so overwhelmed by the negative implications of it that's no longer 
useful. Certainly, I think in intellectual discussions. I mean, if you want to, if you want to get on a political stage and vilify your opponent, that's a good way to do it. Can you describe how it became a form of political slander? Because, you know, when Mussolini first rose to power, there there was at least some interest, <laughs> um, and it wasn't initially denigrated. Um, so, so how did that transition occur from it becoming, you know, a, a form of social political control <laughs> to something that we use as uh, to denigrate uh, and to slander political opponents? Good question. Uh, Mussolini takes power in Italy in 1922. And for, I would say, the first 10, 12 years of his rule, uh, in America, fascism isn't embraced, but there are a lot of people who presume that uh, that what Mussolini represented a, a kind of uh, corporate state uh, with which had a communal orientation, that uh, that that uh, sort of regime had a lot of valuable things going for it. In fact, uh, one of the interesting things is that. Teddy Roosevelt, who had been the American president uh, in the early part of the century uh, and was known as a progressive, it was claimed by many, many people that Mussolini had uh, a lot in common with Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, the argument was that uh, Roosevelt, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt, uh, had prefigured some of the things that were going on in Mussolini's Italy. And in the late 1920s, when the United States has rejected progressivism, uh, and when many people see Republican individualism uh, as uh, coming to a high point, uh, Mussolini is heralded because uh, he perhaps has something to teach America about these uh, these values, which in the United States could be described as progressive. So he's doing pretty well, uh, and fascism is doing pretty well. Then uh, I think uh, two things happen which really transform the meaning of fascism. One is the Great Depression, which, uh, uh, which hits the United States more severely than any other country in the world in the late 20s and early 30s. Uh, and then the notion of having a strong leader and the notion of enforcing some kind of uh, strict regulation on, uh, on the economy in order to get out of the depression, the reality of what that means, the reality of having a strong leader who is to some extent authoritarian, that frightens a lot of people. So Mussolini begins to lose his aura uh, at, at the beginning of the Depression. And then uh, Franklin Roosevelt is becomes the this uh, new progressive leader in the United States. And Roosevelt, people sometimes forget this. He comes to power in the United States at almost exactly within three months, I think, the same time that Hitler comes into power in Germany. And then, and, and right away, and this is a really interesting aspect of this study, uh, 
Mussolini and Hitler are seen as two uh, variants of the same sort of government. But all of a sudden, Mussolini becomes to look like uh, 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 an inefficient, silly, corrupt leader uh, in comparison to Hitler, who is the efficient German leader. And one of the really interesting things about what I did when what happened when I studied this is that you see the Italian term fascism becomes the dominant way of describing these people, even though fascism is by the mid 30s, the government of this kind of foolish Italian. And if you look at popular culture, if you look at cartoons, well, I didn't do enough with cartoons in this in my book, although I did do a lot with movies. Uh, the cartoons are amazing. You see them change from the 20s when Mussolini is a strong leader to the 30s and 40s when the guy looks like a complete fool. And it's Hitler who uh, exudes the true notion of fascism. So the depression and then Hitler's taking over in Germany change the uh, emotional valence of fascism from positive to negative. Mm -hmm. And it's from then on, I would say 1935, 36, for the next 80, 90 years, that uh, the connotations of the word fascism or the concept become entirely negative. Uh, there's no way you can talk about this political position without implying that it is uh, bad. And one of the first people, I mean, and this is a, a very good example of my view that it's not a helpful term. One of the first major political figures who's de designated as a fascist is Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, here's a guy who now, uh, you, uh, at least I can't teach a history class uh, without, without uh, having it be known that Roosevelt, you know, is the principal democratic leader of the 20th century. And perhaps, you know, what, you know, the, the greatest president of the United States since, uh, since Lincoln. Uh, and yet in the 1930s, there are a good 45% of the people who claim that he's a fascist uh, and that he will move the United States to fascism. So when you get, when you read this stuff and you think, Gee, what? Who is not a fascist if he's not? Uh, if he is, you mentioned the role of cartoons and popular culture, and in your book, you also talk about the role that uh, movies play as well. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about talk a little bit more about the role that popular culture and movies, in particular, um, have played in depicting fascism and shaping Americans' understanding of fascism? Well, thank you for that question. This is the one I love most of all, because one of the things that I discovered when I got into this was how important movies are. Uh, there is, as you will know as an academic, a ton, many tons of academic discussion of fascism and what it means comparison to uh, communism, its connection to totalitarianism. Uh, 
more and more. I mean, it's just the, the scholarly literature is extraordinary and it has accumulated from the 19, actually from the late 1920s onward up to the present. Um, and one of the things that I discovered is that uh, for ordinary people, so far as I can tell, that scholarly discussion has an absolutely it has an impact, but it's a very, very tiny impact on ordinary Americans' understanding of what fascism is. Instead, what you find uh, is that uh, ra the radio shows, uh, television programs, uh, the internet, uh, but especially movies are what are really powerful opinion makers. Uh, hands down, popular culture uh, is more significant than scholarly discussion in shaping people's idea of what fascism is. And uh, let me concentrate on the movies, although, I mean, you know, uh, you look at theater, you, you look at theater, uh, you you look at radio. I mean, there are all sorts of great things that you can that go on and on and on uh, that elaborate on this menace to America. But the movies are incredible. Uh, you I and uh, I start. Let me let me start off with ones that are uh, fairly serious films about it. Uh, there's one of the really big movies, one of the biggest movies in 1939 is a film called Confessions of a, of a Nazi Spy uh, with uh, Edward Nazi G. Spy. Robinson playing uh, I am one of thousand, uh, the guy in every who part of the United States to steal the secrets of your national defense. You, there are spy stations in all of the Navy Yard in Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Newport News. There are Nazi agents in the aeroplane and munition factories at Bristol, Buffalo, Seattle, Boston. The chief United States inspector in one of your factories turning out secret aeroplane parts is a German spy. A trial in the United States federal court first brought to the attention of a startled nation this amazing danger to its safety and freedom. Americans got their hatred of the Nazis in the late 1930s from looking at films like this. Um, and from what I can tell, the uh, the the Munich conference of uh, nineteen the Munich conferences of nineteen thirty eight and thirty nine, which are all cited in all the scholarly literature. Uh, this these are the conferences to which Neville Chamberlain went went uh, and agreed with uh, Hitler that uh, that Hitler could have Czech take over Czechoslovakia. The uh, western parts of Czechoslovakia. It's known as the the conference which appeased Hitler and which uh, was made infamous by Chamberlain's coming home and saying we have peace in our time. Uh, the conference is undoubtedly important, but if you look at all the public opinion, what what shaped Americans' view of the Nazis was not what Hitler did at Munich, but what. Edward G. Robinson did in this movie. Um, and if you go on, there are really some incredibly interesting uh, films which portray in one serious way or another uh, 
the the impact of uh, Nazism on the United States. Uh, uh, another great movie which I really like is Seven Days in May with Burt Lancaster and uh, Frederick March, uh, which which is about a supposed military-style fascist coup in the United States, which is uh, uh, foiled at the last minute. Seven Days in May. The first day when a Marine colonel wondered who was inciting screaming mobs in Madison Square Garden. The second day that uncovered secret meetings in Washington's back alleys. The third day when unknown men prepared to kidnap the president from his private vacation resort. The fourth day that brought a secret presidential messenger to death in a plane crash in Spain the day a senator of the United States was held against his will. The fifth day, when a woman found her past being used for blackmail. Look, Ellie, if I could tell you why I I'll tell you this, something. you don't understand. I was a stupid, impressionable female who let an Air Force general use her like his personal airplane. The sixth day, the discovery of a desert base for an airborne task force, kept secret even from the president of the United States. seventh day, when the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff dared the President of the United States to stop the conspiracy that couldn't be proved. You're not a weak sister, Mr. President. You're a criminally weak sister. You say I've duped the people, General. I've built them. I've misled them. I've stripped them naked and made them defenseless. You accuse me of having lost their faith, deliberately and criminally shut my ears to the national voice. I do. Where the hell have you heard that voice, General? In freight elevators? In dark alleys? In secret places in the dead of night? How did that voice seep into a locked room full of conspirators? That's not where you hear the voice of the people, General. Not in this republic. And I will not resign voluntarily. I'm going to fight you. And then we'll see which one of us the United States is willing to follow. Then, after the serious movies, and this is what I want to get to because I just find it so fascinating, uh, is what I call the farce of fascism. Mm. Uh, and this is a genre of films, which uh, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them, but, uh, but what I want to say about them is that they're amazing because what they do right from the start is to make fun of fascism. And the earliest, I think, and, and most interest, or one of the most interesting is Groucho Mar one of the Groucho Marx's movie Duck Soup, where Groucho plays the leader of some uh, tiny little country uh, in which he goes to war against another tiny little country because uh, one of the diplomats in the other country has insulted uh, Groucho's girlfriend uh, and try actually tried to steal the the girlfriend from Groucho. The uh, idiot fascist leader of who is played by Groucho goes to war. You're not so bad yourself. We fool you good, eh? What do you find out about this guy Firefly? Find out of something? You know, find out of something? Spy on him? 
You know, spy on him. That's the matter. All the time I talk to you, no say nothing. That's the matter. You know, speak. I said, let's stop this. Because I feel you are the most able statesman in all of Bredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, got a flashlight? Now we've got to have more men or we're lost. Don't be alarmed. I've got a man combing the countryside for volunteers. <laughs> They're fleeing like rats. But, sir, I've got to turn... Remind me to give myself the Firefly Medal for this. Your Excellency, you're shooting your own men. What? You're shooting your own men. Here's five dollars. Keep it under your hat. Never mind. I'll keep it under my hat. Is there anything else you want to know? What's the matter with you? Have you lost your voice? They got guns. We got guns. All God's children got guns. We're going to walk all over the devil's All God's children got guns. This was a film that Groucho made 10 years after Mussolini came to power. And for me, it, it, uh, it's 1932, 33, it comes out. Uh, and for me, it's a good example of how fascism is turning from being something good to being something bad. But Groucho Marx makes fun of these, these people. And in fact, it's, the film is banned in Italy. Uh, there are any number of uh, these kind of uh, comedic uh, renderings of fascism. Uh, one famous one is Dr. Strangelove uh, with Peter Sellers uh, playing uh, two roles. One is the president and one is a, a lunatic Nazi advisor to the president of the United States. I would guess that a dwelling space for several hundred thousand of our people could easily be provided. Well, I'm, I would hate to have to decide who stays up and who goes down. Well, it would not be necessary, Mr. President. It could easily be accomplished with a computer. And the computer could be set and programmed to accept factors from youth, health, sexual fertility, intelligence, and a cross-section of necessary skills. Of course, it would be absolutely vital that our top government and military men be included to foster and impart the required principles of leadership and tradition. Uh, my favorite of all is the producers, uh, the Mel Brooks movie, which had, which was, which came out in 1967. This really, the producers, a phenomenon. It was it was remade it, after it came out in the movies. It had a Broadway, Ray, a Broadway run immediately. It then had another Broadway run. Uh, in uh, in 2000 or so, which is when I saw it. Another there was another movie made of it, and uh, the original, which comes out in 1967, is I think one of the most extraordinary commentaries on American culture that you're going to get. Here we are in 1967. This is the height of the Vietnam War, uh, where everybody is calling everybody a fascist. Uh, 
you know, Lyndon Johnson gets labeled that way so many times, as do his advisors. Uh, they label the kids who were protesting the war fascists, uh, Hitler youth, they get often the kids who are protesting the war, one of them was me, uh, get labeled members of Hitler youth. Uh, and what happens? Mel Brooks makes a, a movie that makes fun of, of these guys. I mean, if you don't know the, the movie or the plot, uh, you really have a treat in store because what happens is that uh, uh, is that the producers, uh, uh, who the chief one of which played by Zero Mostel, uh, decides to make some money by selling uh, 10,000 shares of a movie that's sure to flop, or, or sorry, a, a Broadway play that's sure to flop. And he looks for the worst play he can imagine, you know, that would absolutely flop. And the play is called Springtime for Hitler. And of course, as it turns out, the play becomes a huge Broadway hit. But the springtime, but the play Springtime for Hitler uh, is a uh, is a tongue-in-cheek but uh, pro-Nazi play written by an ex-Nazi. A lot of little old ladies in the world. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. We're marching to a faster pace. Look out, here comes the master race. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Born in Dusseldorf, and that is why they call me Rolf. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. Uh, and it goes on Broadway, and there's this wonderful, more than wonderful uh, song that pervades the film, called, or pervades the Broadway show called Springtime for Hitler. Springtime for Hitler in Germany. Uh, winter for Poland and France. And the song and dance number that goes with it has uh, these huge swastikas and Nazi banners, and it has uh, uh, artillery shot uh, uh, into the into the audience, and it has a huge banner of Hitler coming down. I mean, it's amazing. But he, Matt, but what Mel Brooks does is to make fun of this guy who is uh, Hitler, who would you know. As I've said, you know, has overseen the most bestial regime in the history of the planet. Let me tell you one more, which I actually is a favorite of mine. Uh, there was a German movie called uh, Untergang, a very serious movie uh, made in Germany in German about uh, the last days of Hitler in his bunker. Uh, there's a very, very uh, accomplished. Uh, Swiss German uh, actor Bruno Gantz, uh, who recently died, actually, 
uh, who plays Hitler in this 2000, I think it's 2004, the movie comes out. And there's one scene in the bunker right at the end where Hitler launches into a two-minute diatribe about who's responsible for bringing Germany to the abyss. Not him, but the Americans uh, and the Russians and everybody else. This is right before he kills himself. So what has happened is that somebody got the bright idea of pulling these two minutes uh, out of the movie and putting them on YouTube. And, uh, and uh, instead of having the German subtitles for this movie, which is called Downfall in English, they, they put in different subtitles with Hitler talking about all sorts of things. Who's to blame for why he didn't get on, into graduate school? Uh, why he can't stand the traffic on the Long Island Expressway. And they go on and on and on. There are hundreds of these, they're called Hitler parodies, and they're all designed to be funny. Uh, there is all, now a website which theorizes about the parodies. That is, what does this mean for our understanding of Hitler? What does this mean for the translation of German into English about Hitler? Uh, it's just amazing. But what it shows me, well, it, it, the, it shows me my basic thesis is correct. That is, Americans are absolutely fascinated, uh, obsessed with with this with this regime and uh, and with what it means. And it also tells me that there's this big streak of obsession which has to do with humor. Now we know humor is not just faha. It tells us something about our deepest fears. It tells us about uh, you know why we uh, you know uh, why we whistle when we walk through a graveyard, but it's a fascinating cultural phenomenon. And once you start poking away. It's everywhere. There, There's a great deal about the humor, but it, it seems that there's also a great deal of fear as well uh, that, that has captured the imagination yeah. and, and that that continues on. And you, you write uh, a little bit about uh, the Handmaid's Tale, uh, the adaptation yeah. of Margaret Atwood's book in 1985. Yeah. And, you know, that this becomes, you know, basically a political motivator, especially for suburban women yeah. um, and and critiques against the presidency of Donald Trump. So I might maybe you can conclude by also talking a little bit about how, you know, we continue to see it as a um, as a political motivator or the relationship between the fear of fascism and political motivations. Well, this is something actually my children clued me in on. but. Uh, the latest rendering of this, what you rightly call fear, has come in TV series. Uh, and you mentioned The Handmaid's Tale, which is uh, amazing. This is a, a, the book was made and uh, was written in 1985, I believe. And yet it's, it's like 30 years later that you finally get uh, an extended version of what goes on uh, in the in the book on, uh, on in a TV series, and one that I find really, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how people I've watched, as you can imagine in my research, a, a, a lot of the episodes of this, but I found that really kind of scary and frightening and 
uh, disturbing. And as I write in the book, I think it had a lot more to do with women's uh, involvement uh, in uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign than than Hillary or than Hillary Clinton herself. I mean, they, they these people were motivated, I think, by looking at the uh, at the TV series. But there are others. There's a, there's one called Designated Survivor about a a plot against the American government carried out by some mysterious right wing organization. Uh, another one that I find that I found really difficult to watch uh, was The Man in the High Castle. Uh, which which was very very important for uh, several years on TV and is is derives from a Philip Dick novel of the same name where uh, the United States loses World War II and the uh, Japanese take over the west coast of the United States and the Germans take over the east coast. Uh, but I would say that all all of those. Uh, those enterprises reflect, and this is, it's easy to make causal connections here, and I'm just speculating, but they are a function of the increased uh, polarization that's been in the United States been going on since 2000, and they kind of reflect Americans' deepest fears of, of what might be happening to their polity. And of course, you see that uh, not just trickling over, but seeping into the politics of the last five or six years when uh, what I would call the very disruptive politics of the United uh, of Donald Trump is, you know, grist for this, uh, what do I want to call it, uh, fascist, uh, obsessed America. So, uh, and I expect more. Uh, you know, I uh, I end the book by talking about there was a board game. I don't even know if it's still uh, uh, crucial in Washington, D.C., but called Secret Hitler, uh, where after dinner, uh, guests at your uh, at, at your meal will will play this board game, which has them uh, thinking they might be Hitler or that they might be overtaken by Hitler. So it's everywhere. Uh, and it, as I said, it's uh, a cultural phenomenon that I don't think that many people have stepped back to examine very carefully. Dr. Cooklick, thank you so much for taking the time to share your book with us. Listeners, there's a link uh, to the book that is published and out now by the University of Chicago Press. Thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed this. I hope your view, your listeners did too. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.